Good morning. Am I on? There we go. It's been a while. Uh, my name is Tim Rue. My wife, Allison, and my children, Hudson, Laurel, and Landon, have been attending Joy since the merger of Joy and Hope, which I think is like 19 years ago, something like that. Um, so we've been members here for a while. Uh, today I will be reading Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. If you're following along in a pew, Bi pew Bible, it's page 979. Today's focus will be on verse 15. As you are turning, I had the unique opportunity in Sunday school class today to be challenged a little bit about people that have been disciples in our lives. And I have the unique opportunity to be up here on the day of someone who has been a disciple in my life and mentor and brother. And it's his birthday today, so I just wanted to wish Jeff Crispin a happy birthday today. Yeah, clap for that. I knew there was a reason I was picked for today. I work in a high school, so I feel like birthdays are like a bigger deal for some reason. Like I, my birthday was a few days ago. Like 500 kids come up and say happy birthday. So it's kind of cool. Sometimes I think when we get older, we kind of think birthdays aren't cool anymore. But happy birthday, Jeff. So if you read with me, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet have put on the red readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and with all perseverance, make supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and that it is living and active in our lives. We thank you for all the promises we have in your word. Uh, that we can look to uh, for guidance and that we can go to in times of trouble. We thank you for the leaders of this body and their love for the scriptures. We pray that you will be with Pastor Larry as he comes here today, that he would be faithful to your word and that our hearts would be receptive to receiving it. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. I've known Tim a long time. I never heard him say Pastor Larry before. If you, and those of you that are not crazy about me being a part of this church, um, it's Tim's fault. Tim is the one who invited me here in, 2000, in 2003. So just another little, little discipling tidbit there. There, there you go. Okay. Um, 
That, wasn't the, that was not the introduction to the sermon. Um, I, I confirmed this online yesterday to ensure that this was not something that was just a figment of, of my imagination or something that I had sort of uh, embellished in my mind. But the blizzard of 96, that actually was a thing. Uh, do you remember the blizzard of 96? Yeah, I got some people, okay, the, the, the blizzard of 96, 25 years ago, almost 26 years ago now, uh, there was a record-setting snowstorm that hit our region, and it, it dumped, depending on where you were in our region, somewhere between two and four feet of snow in a very short, like a day or two. Uh, and it, it produced a lot of damage. It, it actually killed around 150 people were killed in this storm. Um, it left over a billion dollars of damage. And I uh, was an 18-year-old freshman at Penn State University. And um, my, my, it was the tail end of our winter break, and so my mom drove me up to State College the day before the storm, because we knew the storm was coming, so she, she dropped me off there. I was uh, a, a manager for the Penn State men's basketball team, and there was a game on that Sunday. Uh, I believe it was January 7th, 1996, and um, I somehow inexplicably, I don't remember all exactly where we were, I guess the storm was either mostly over or completely over, but somehow there was still a basketball game to be played on January 7th, and my dorm was about a, a mile away from the gym where the basketball team played. And so I was a freshman, I didn't have a car on campus, so uh, I walked from my dorm to the gym. I think I might have been offered a ride by someone, but I just I said, it's fine, I can, I'll, I'll walk. And it was a walk. <laughs> uh, again, I don't remember if it was snowing on me at the time or if it was just trekking through three-ish feet of snow for a mile, but it was exhausting. <laughs> I'm carrying, I got a travel bag where I'm carrying my, my jacket and my, 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 my tie and my dress shoes, and I'm trekking through three feet of snow for a mile, and I, I got to the, the, the arena, and I was just, I was exhausted. I didn't want to do, I wanted to go to sleep. But I, I'll tell you, I was really glad. I don't know that I appreciated it at that time so much. I was thinking about it more this week for reasons that I think will become obvious to you in about 10 seconds. I was really thankful to have a good pair of boots. Uh, they weren't just for fashion. I had bought a pair of boots, Timberland boots. I still have them. They're the same boots. I still, I'm, a, I'm a very simple man. I got the same boots that I that trekked through State College in the blizzard 96. They're the ones I was wearing out there when I was on that wagon preaching in the snow last January. I had bought them, I think, to be fashionable because, you know, some Timberland boots and they're cool looking. At least they were in 1996. I don't know if they still are. Um, but they were really useful. Kids, I, I, I don't know if you're looking forward as the weather's starting to get a little cooler, maybe you're looking forward to a nice snowy winter. I could tell you it's not as fun to play in the snow, at least not for more than 10 seconds, if you don't have a good pair of boots. If you're wearing flip-flops out in the snow, that might be fun for a very short time, but it would be a very short time. Having a good pair of Boots is very important when you're playing in the snow. And the proper kind of footwear is important, not just in the midst of a snowstorm, but in battle as well. 
Uh, in the days that Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians that we've just heard read from, uh, the, the Roman soldiers were given shoes that were specifically tailored to equip them for usefulness in battle. So there's a, a Jewish historian you may have heard of by the name of Josephus, and he tells as, as part of the success of Caesar as a military general was in the provision that he made for the footwear of his soldiers. He provided them with sandals. We call it, we call them sandals. They call them sandals, not sandals the way you would probably think of them, but they had thick nails uh, in the soles of the, the shoe, kind of if you would envision like a, a soccer or a baseball cleat, but these were thick metal spikes. And that they would, they would serve the purpose, really two purposes, one to, to help the soldiers stand securely and to help them to be able to move quickly as they might be traveling through uh, long patches of terrain so that they would not slip, that they would not fall in the midst of combat. And so we're, we're reminded in this portion of scripture that we've been studying this fall that we're engaged in, in battle, that we're engaged in warfare. We're not in a peacetime, we're in wartime. And this, this world is not a playground. I mean, there's some fun things we could do in it, but this world fundamentally is not a playground, but it's a battleground. And we've been reminded of that as we've been slowly working through this paragraph in Ephesians chapter 6. And our warfare is not primarily against politicians, but our warfare, we're told in Ephesians 6, is against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, led by the devil himself, who is scheming against us. And in the midst of this battle, the Christian soldier has been given the right kind of footwear for our warfare. God wants his people prepared for the travails of life in this difficult world that we live in. Sometimes it may feel to you like you're trekking through three feet of snow and it's daunting and you're being battered and bruised and wearied. And God wants to make sure we've got the right kind of shoes, so to speak, to make that journey. Our feet need to be equipped to stand firmly when Satan's attacking blows come at us. And so Paul exhorts the Ephesian church there in Ephesians 6.14. I hope your Bibles are, are open. That's nine. If you want to use one of the ones in, in front of you, page 979. Uh, we'll, we'll back up to verse 14. I know Tim just read it, but back to verse 14. Stand, therefore. That's the main calling here in this paragraph. Stand, Having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, we've talked about those two pieces of armor over the last couple of Sundays, and now we come to verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, the question came to my mind immediately. I don't really have an outline. I'm sorry, note taker. I have no outline. I guess if you want an outline, the outline is I have one question. It's a one-point sermon, and the, it's a question. And the question is, what is Paul talking about? <laughs> not, not helpful, I told you, but, you know. But that's the question that I was confronted with. What is he talking about exactly? I mean, it's, 
putting on truth, okay, that we need truth to fight against the devil's lies and the Bible is truth. We got to put that on. We got to fill ourselves up with the truth. I can get my mind around that. I don't always walk in it as I would like, but I understand the idea. Putting on righteousness, remembering the righteousness of Christ that has been credited to us by faith and then living out that righteousness and pursuing righteousness in reliance upon the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the Christ who is perfect righteousness. I can understand that. I'm not sure I understand what it means to put on readiness. What does that mean? Literally, this this phrase here in verse 15 is uh, binding on or fitting the feet with readiness of the gospel of peace. What does that mean? And not all Bible commentators and teachers uh, agree, actually, on what it means. Uh, There's a lot of good Bible commentators and teachers who conclude that what it must mean is putting on a readiness to declare the gospel to the lost, to do evangelism. So they see in this verse a connection with the passage that I read from in the call to worship, right? Isaiah 52.7. And it seems to me that there is a clear reference being made to Isaiah 52.7. That's the only other uh, verse in the Bible, I believe, where the ideas of feet and good news and peace are put together. Isaiah 52.7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness. And so they see that reference in Isaiah 52, and they observe the other reference that Paul made to that particular verse in Isaiah in Romans chapter 10, where in Romans 10, Paul is uh, commending and, and the necessity of hearing and believing the gospel in order to be saved. And how is someone going to hear and believe if they don't have someone preach to them? And then Paul says, how are they to preach? This is Romans 10, 15. How are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? So they see those connections and they conclude, these teachers of the Bible conclude, this is a call to be ready, put on the readiness to proclaim the gospel so that sinners might be saved from their sins and reconciled to God, being at peace with God and made joyful citizens of his happy reign. And that sounds very reasonable. But I don't think that's actually what Paul's talking about. Um, I I think it might be. I might be wrong. And the last thing I want to do this morning is disincentivize you from your urgency and zeal in proclaiming the gospel. So let me just dig down here for just a, a moment, even though I don't think this is really the main thing that Paul is saying. Because even if that's the main thing that he's saying here, it is certainly true that we do in fact engage in warfare against the devil by declaring the good news of the devil's defeat. That is warfare. Satan hates the good news about Christ's blood and the forgiveness that it purchases. He hates 
to see sinners who are his captives, who are his property, so to speak. He hates to see sinners reconciled to God. And so he wars to hinder evangelism among unbelievers. Jesus told us that clearly in his parable. You remember the parable Jesus told about the four different kinds of soil and the seed gets sown. And that first seed that gets sown is right. It's scattered. And, and it says, and he, when he interprets the parable, he says in Luke 8, 12, the devil just snatches away that word. So he is at war in our efforts to speak the gospel. But we know that in Christ, the devil is a loser. If, if one of my kids said to somebody, said of somebody, that person's a loser, I would be very, I would not be happy. I would admonish. But I think it's okay to say the devil is a loser. He is a defeated foe. Hell's gates will not prevail against Jesus' church. And so in reliance upon Jesus and his Holy Spirit, we, we lace up, we the, lace up the shoes of the gospel of peace and we sow the seeds of the gospel. And in doing so, we, pr what a privilege this is that we co-labor with God to deliver people from slavery to the devil and leading them to the freedom that is found in Christ. That is a precious Privilege. So by all means, brothers and sisters, for the eternal good of others and for the strengthening and encouragement of your own soul, I trust you know that and have experienced that, Christians, that when you have spoken the gospel, even if that gospel has not been well received, your own faith, your own stability and strengthening to withstand the schemes of the devil is emboldened when you speak the gospel for the good of others and for the strengthening of your own soul. Speak up for Jesus. Speak up for him in your neighborhoods and amongst your family members and in your workplaces and everywhere you go. Be prayerfully looking out for ways to speak of Jesus. I mean, that was such an encouragement to me. It's, it's public, so I'm just going to say it uh, because it's in the prayer guide this week. I was just so encouraged to get that prayer request from Ryan and Kayla uh, this week. Just to, that we would pray as they've had the opportunity to speak to unbelieving neighbors and have the opportunity to read scripture with unbelieving neighbors. Are you praying? I mean, pray that way for Ryan and Kayla because the devil is going to wage war against those efforts. But pray for yourselves that, God, that a year from now, that six months from now, that even by God's grace, one week from now, you may have opportunities to be sitting with neighbors and reading scripture with them because you've been faithful to speak of Jesus to them. This is the only way that people will be saved. This is why we pray about our evangelism frequently. In our Sunday morning services, almost all the time, I mean, not all, every single time, but almost all the time we gather on Sunday night and pray together, we pray about our evangelism. We hear testimonies about evangelism. And we do that because the devil most certainly wars against us by arousing fear or apathy or discouragement or confusion as we seek to be faithful heralds of that good news of great joy that has set us free from the devil's tyranny. Speak the gospel, brothers and sisters. But I, but I don't think that's what Paul is actually telling us to do in this verse. I think there's another way to understand the readiness of the gospel of peace. 
It is a ready, and we know from the context, it's a readiness to stand against the devil's schemes, right? I mean, that's the whole reason we're given the armor. Look there again at verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Well, what scheme? Okay, think about this with me. I, I think maybe those of you that have been sitting in this Ephesians Sunday school class may be particularly able to do this. You've been thinking about the book as a whole, but what particular scheme of the devil might especially be withstood with the gospel, the gospel of peace? I know you don't want to give, you don't want to give me an answer for fear of being wrong, but it seems to me that this readiness of the gospel of peace would be armor to withstand the devil's schemes to divide us. To sow discord and conflict and strife and disunity within the ranks of Christ's army. That's one of Satan's devices. I think it's been about a month since I mentioned Thomas Brooks's precious remedies against Satan's devices. He says in his, in his book, uh, this is one of the great devices that the devil has to destroy the saints by working them first to be strange. That means to make them unfamiliar to each other and then to divide and then to be bitter and jealous and then to bite and devour one another. Quoting Galatians 5.15. It's that kind of scheming that we know Paul has already warned the Ephesians about earlier in this letter when he mentions the devil specifically in Ephesians 4.27. So go back, you've got your Bible open, look, look a page back maybe in your Bible. In verse 26 of Ephesians 4, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Sometimes people read verse 26 and they think this is an endorsement of their anger. I don't think that's the idea here. There is a category for righteous anger. I'm not disputing that. But what he says here is, uh, when you're angry, be very careful because you're at the devil's doorstep. And so when you are angry, be sure to deal swiftly with it. That's the point of the phrase, not letting the sun go down on your anger. Deal with it swiftly, because if you don't deal with the anger swiftly, you're just opening the door up to the devil and all his scheming. So we're to be ready. We know that from Ephesians 4. We're to be ready to withstand the devil because he is especially on the prowl in our experiences of anger, which is certainly destructive to the peace of the church. It, it, I think sometimes when we hear this, this verse used and we talk about not letting the sun go down on your anger, that seems to almost, almost every time I've heard that verse referenced, it's with regard to, you know where I'm going with this, right? Husbands and wives, you don't go to bed angry at each other. Well, you know, if you take this verse real literally, actually, you could go to bed angry because if your fight was after the sun went down, you have a whole time till the next day. <laughs> See, that's not the point. The point is deal with your anger swiftly. But in the context here, it's applicable to marriage. Don't, do not get me wrong. But the point here is this is a highway to uh, destroying the church for the devil. 
He says there in verse 25, speak truth to one another for we're members of one another. He's talking about the health and unity of the church. And he says, don't let the devil in by anger because the devil can tear a church apart through anger or bitterness or lies or malice or gossip or corrupting talk. Oh, how the devil schemes to devour us by inciting us to devour each other. But we've got a gospel for those schemes. I think that's the point that Paul's making here in Ephesians 6.15. We've got a gospel for all those schemes, the gospel of peace. It's this, it's this good news of peace that Paul has already been celebrating earlier in his letter to the Ephesians and exhorted them to remember this. Go back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, therefore, remember. Therefore is following up on verses 1 to 10, which is a wonderful passage. You love Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. So many of you quote Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 in your baptism testimonies about what God has personally done for you in salvation. And it is true and it is precious, but there's more. The gospel that has saved you personally is doing a collective work, making peace among all the people who come to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. And that's what he goes on to talk about beginning in verse 11. He says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. He's talking about the Jews here, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, we're going to read the next few verses too, but we'll just pause there for a moment. That's a word primarily to the Gentile readers that Paul is addressing to. We're talking about you who are far, right? You Gentiles in the flesh. But we know... We know from the whole storyline of the Bible, we know that even the commonwealth of Israel, even having the covenants, even having God's law, we know that the Jews, they were far off too, in God's estimation. They were a little bit nearer because they had access to all those blessings, but they were far off. That glorious proclamation of peace in Isaiah 52 was given to Israel And we know earlier in Isaiah, the people of Israel had been comprehensively condemned for their repeated corruption. They had hard hearts. This is the people of Israel. They had hard hearts. They had blind eyes. They had deaf ears. They had repeatedly ignored the Lord's entreaties through this prophet. We see it at the beginning of Isaiah. We see it at the end of Isaiah. So the book of Isaiah begins, this is Isaiah 1 verse 2, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. And then at the end of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 65 too, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. And so that's the story of all of us. It would have been perfectly just for there have been no word of peace coming to these people, but a word of righteous judgment. That would have been a very fitting, appropriate end to their story and to ours. We were all far from God. 
We have all made ourselves his enemies and have become children of his righteous wrath. Our sin, our propensity to disregard his ways, and as it says there in Isaiah 65.3, to follow our own devices, that has earned for all of us a full forever under the wrath of God. And that's true for all of us. So, so I was thinking about this. I was not thinking to say this, but then I thought to say it as Jenny came up here and read, and I saw Craig back here. Did you catch Craig just trying to hold it in as his daughter came up to read the word of God? And so I just thought I'd ask this question. Um, if you, if you um, are here this morning, and you, for the entire, as long as you can remember, you understand theologically there was a time you became a Christian, but in your experience and your understanding of your own life, if you have always believed it, you cannot remember a time that you did not trust Jesus. Would you just stand up right now? It has to be more than just Ryan L. Well, come on, you bashful people. I'm not, I, you understand, I understand your doctrine is you never know a time that you didn't trust him. Now some people are sitting down. Am I, did I confuse you? By, did I ask the question a different way? You can't remember a time that you didn't trust Jesus. You know you didn't walk it out perfectly. Okay, this is, so look around. Okay, thank you. Have a seat. Now I'm not going to just assume. Because maybe some people are not going to stand at all, okay? And that may be true because you haven't come to believe in Jesus yet. But um, if you do know tangibly a time, you can remember. Yeah, I'm not saying you have a lightning bolt moment and you have it written in a journal. It was 842 on January 19th or something like that. But, but you know a time that you were in darkness and you've come to believe in Jesus. And you know that and you remember that experience. Stand. I would be standing in this, in this group. I know I was standing the whole time, but I'd be standing in this group. Okay, thank you. Sit down. Now, what? okay, a couple things. To all of you kids in the room right now, kids, 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 listen, listen to me. I know you can't listen. I know you don't track with me for the whole 45 or 60 minutes or whatever it is. It's not going to be 60, I promise. Um, kids, I want you to know, even though there was not a lot of people that stood first, I want you to know that all of your parents long for you to be standing in that first group of people someday. And that's really wonderful. That would be really wonderful. We're all praying for that. But I want you to know also that whether you stood in the first group, the very small number of you that stood in the first group, or the larger group of you that stood in the second group, what I just said a couple minutes ago before I did that little stand and sit exercise, it's true of all of us. We all had earned for ourselves. Whether you can remember this or understand it, this is the, or not understand, whether you remember the experience in your own life, this is the biblical diagnosis. We have all, it's right there in Ephesians 2, verse 3. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is the truth of all of us. So when you think, whether you're in that first group or that second group of people, when you think about what your lives, of what your life should be in your sin, it should be unending, turbulent storm of suffering. That's what it should be. And that's what it will be for those who die in their sin. Jesus speaks of it as weeping and gnashing of teeth where there is persistent and permanent pain forever. 
That's what is owed to all of us. That's what we should be experiencing right now. All of us. If you, if you are here this morning and you didn't stand in either one of those groups because, because you haven't put your faith in Christ, please, I, I'm not just trying to be up here with a, a fire and brimstone message to scare you, but it's my, it's my responsibility to tell you the truth of God's word. And I say it because I care and because I love you and I don't want you to experience that destiny. And the wonderful news is we've got a message of peace. We have good news of reconciliation. To the Jewish exiles in Isaiah 52, what a breathtaking word this would have been in their sin and rebellion. We've got good news of peace. And that peace and that promise of peace, it came to pass, not just for the people of Israel, but for people from all nations, and it came to pass in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Why would he do that? I, we can, it's easy. You just, the longer you do it, the longer you live it, you can forget how amazing it is. Why would he do that? He doesn't want, Paul doesn't want you to forget it. That's why he says in verse 11 and verse 12, remember this. It's the only commandment Paul gives in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Remember this salvation. Why would he do that with enemies? Why would he reconcile the world to himself, all from the world who would put their faith in Jesus, not counting our trespasses against us? Why would he do it? But as we're pondering that question, another question, even perhaps more amazing, comes to mind, and that is, look at what he did, and can you imagine what he actually did to secure that peace? And we get that right there in Ephesians 2.13, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. We're so guilty, and our alienation runs so deep that the Son of God had to come and die in order to make peace with us, and he loved you so richly that he did it. He was glad to do it. The Bible tells us he did it for the joy that was set before him. Oh, that's the message of reconciliation that we have for you if you have not put your faith in Christ. See your sin, see your going, your own devices, and see where it leads. See the hopelessness and the, the lack of real hope. No matter who wins the elections on Tuesday or who wins the elections in 2024, there is no peace, there is no stability, there is no hope without God. And he, though you're a sinner, he has made the message of reconciliation available to you right now if you would believe upon him. If you don't know what that means to do that, I would be happy to talk to you in a much quieter voice after the service. Oh, but you know, you have known this, brothers and sisters. You have known this. And this peace that he makes between you and God is a peace that is deeply personal, but it's not meant to stay private. Because this message that reconciles us to God likewise reconciles us to all the people who have similarly experienced that reconciliation, even those of us who were formerly bitter enemies like Jews and Gentiles. That's where Paul goes in the rest of the verses. Look at verse 14. I'm still in Ephesians 2. Are you getting the gospel of peace? 
It's going to come up really clear right here. Peace. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off Gentiles, far off Gentiles. And he came and he preached peace to those who were near, a little bit closer because they had the covenants and the law, but still far off in their sin. And he made peace with all who would come to Jesus. And that, okay, it is such good news. My wife's nodding like, yeah, it's time for you to just chill a little bit. I know, okay. That shared experience of grace and peace, of knowing what you deserved and knowing the lavish inheritance that you have obtained, in Christ, that shuts conflict down. I mean, that is a tonic for peace amongst the people of God. I mean, it's really hard to feel hostility towards another Christian brother or sister when, when you realize that Jesus is the only reason any of you are in God's family anyway. <laughs> what did you bring to the table? Other than your sin and your enmity against God and your alienation, what did you bring that he would save you? The answer is, if you're unsure, the answer is you brought nothing. You just brought your sin. Jesus paid it all, as we often say. And he who has done absolutely nothing to cause this enmity is the very one who does everything to restore peace. That's a great aid to us in all the threats that we experience to, uh, to our peace when we are tempted to quarreling and anger and disunity, right? When we're, when we're singing, oh, so many songs we could, every Sunday, there's just so many different songs that we could sing to celebrate these truths. When you're singing in your soul and you're experiencing it alive in your heart, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused. A quickening ray, I woke the dungeon, flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Yeah, you, you, Ron, and you, Leah, and you, Dick, and you, Ben, all of you who have tried, he did it for you. And when we're living in that, when we're thinking about that, when that word of Christ is dwelling richly in us, how can you possibly harbor anger or wrath or bitterness or malice or irritation with somebody else? I mean, apart from temporary spiritual amnesia, like how's that even possible? And you know what? Right there, that shows just how crafty and how malicious 
and how powerful our enemy is because it does happen. He exacerbates the enemy I'm talking about. He exacerbates and he inflames our indwelling sin and those deceitful desires that are still warring in our hearts and he sows discord. We, we prayed, Craig led us in prayer of some of those ways. We prefer secrecy and isolation rather than telling people and being honest about our lives and our burdens. We speak up when we should be silent and we stay silent when we should speak up. We talk about people instead of talking to people in a constructive and edifying way. We talk about people in ways that we would never talk to that person. If they were there, we'd be mortified if they heard the manner, the tone of voice we were using to speak about somebody else. We dwell on and we judge one another for things that, that we may legitimately disagree upon. Things like politics. Things like vaccinations. Things like the prevalence of systemic racism in our society today. We dwell on those things and we judge one another for those things rather than exulting together in the Jesus that we agree on even as we engage lovingly in those important conversations that should take place. But instead, they're dividing people. They're dividing the people of God. Randy Alcorn calls it a pandemic of disunity in the church. When, when we conclude, if, if only even in our hearts, when we conclude, I can't have fellowship with you because you're wearing a mask or because you haven't gotten the COVID vaccine, that's a gospel defeat. That's, that's the devil scheming at us, seeking to undo us and defame our God by destroying our peace. That's his M.O. He hates God and he hates the gospel. And so he hates churches that are commissioned to bear witness to his saving, uniting love. And he delights to distract us and divide us over a bunch of stuff, even some important things, but stuff that is far less important than the oneness that we have in Jesus. And so brothers and sisters, what we got to do is we got to put on that readiness of the gospel. We got to put on that message of peace. Remember who you are. Remember what he's done for you. That's how Paul, trans that's how Paul makes the transition, actually, in moving from the, the glory of what he's done for you in Christ in chapters 1 to 3 to the, to the calling that you're to live in to bear witness to that salvation in chapters 4 through 6. Look there at chapter 4, verse 1. You want to know what is that readiness? You want to know what that readiness of the gospel is? I think it's right there in Ephesians 4.1. Therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In a culture Boy, we live in a culture, they are so ready to cancel, aren't they? Cancel culture, that's what they call it. So ready 
to vilify and demonize everyone who's got a different opinion about something. Just shut it down. But delete your Twitter page. Not you deleting it. Somebody else will delete it for you. So many, just, just cancel, period. The church is called to be a different kind of people. He says it right there, one new man, a new humanity, a new race. He's bringing black people and white people and Latino people and Asian people. He's bringing them into a new race. He's creating a new race, an in Christ race. There's an in Adam race and there's an in Christ race. Those are the races. And I, I just started something I didn't have time to finish. Today, we could talk more about that after the service, if you'd like. We're called to be a different people. Armored up with that gospel of peace. A city set on a hill. Light shining in darkness. And so actually, the evangelism piece that I was saying this isn't really about, it actually joins together here at this point. Because when we live in ways, when we're armored up with that gospel of peace, ready to put on humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance, an eager readiness to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, when we're living in that ways, we're a signpost of that new world that we're going to sing of in a few minutes. We become, the church becomes a signpost, a, a movie trailer, a billboard. You see all those, especially this time, right, this weekend, you're seeing all those signs all around. Everybody's got their political candidate. They put their, their sign in the, in the grass. Well, we have a sign to put in our grass, so to speak, about our political candidate. That's a weird way of putting it, I know, but he's the king of, it. Jesus' claim is a political one. He is king of kings and he is Lord of lords. He does not need your vote. Praise God, he has chosen some of us out of this world to submit ourselves and trust in him, but he is our hope, he is our king, and we as the church, we're called to put a sign out front, so to speak, and the sign of our king is love. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We put on love and gentleness and patience and humility, and that's really hard. Because we're really some sinful people. And, I, and we dwell long enough together, and I'm going to irritate you, and you're going to irritate me, and we're going to need gospel boots. We've got a gospel big enough for every single conflict that we have. I'm just debating whether I want to tell you this or not. Um, there was... There was, this is it, I'm, I'm, give me three minutes, but don't, that doesn't mean to close your Bible and, you know, shut down and stop listening to me. Um, I heard earlier this year of an artist named Tom Yendel, I think is how you say his name. Tom Yendel. Are you familiar with his? I don't know if you're familiar with his painting. Uh, he's known for flower canvas paintings. And I'm not really an art connoisseur, believe it or not, it's surprising I know, but I'm not really an art connoisseur. And so I first saw some of his works, and I was like, you know, okay, yeah, that's, that's fine. Um, I don't really just have, I don't have an appreciation really for intricate detail, you know, and, and um, at least not in art. I try to be intricately detailed in the scriptures, but some have one calling, some have another. Um, but I, I, I'll tell you my thinking about Tom Yendel's paintings changed dramatically when I was told that Tom Yendel was born without arms. And that he painted those paintings with his feet and with his mouth. 
That really changed my regard for those paintings. What a depth of appreciation was provoked in me. And any deficiencies that I may have observed, and I'm not really going to be observing many deficiencies in a work piece of art anyway, but any deficiency that there might have been would be overwhelmed by the wonder and awe that such a work of art could be composed in such an amazing way. Well, Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. Not just this one paragraph we've been digging into, but he wrote the letter as a whole, including this paragraph, to help the people in Ephesus and the people of God throughout the centuries to, to have something a little bit greater of a grasp, a little bit of a changed perspective of the glory and the wonder of what he's done in creating the church. A group of pardoned rebels whom he has consecrated to display his glory before all the heavenly host as we proclaim the truth about him and look increasingly like him, people who are holy and loving and united and committed to peace. Just look, I mean, I, it's not an impression. We look around and it's like, we just don't seem like maybe we're that impressive of a bunch. We see problems with things that are, we see things that are wrong. We see things that we ought to be doing better. That's true. There's a lot we could be doing better, ways we could be growing as a church. But do you have any idea of how sacred and how holy and how, how much of a treasure is every gospel-embracing church? And the call of God on us is to protect it and to proclaim it by putting on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. May, may he grant us to keep the gospel of peace as the message of first importance at Joy Community Fellowship. And may he grant us to know that blessing that he has commanded life forevermore to those who dwell together. Love you, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for such a great salvation. It is just so amazing that we're not in hell right now. We pray that that truth would not become old to us, that we would be moved freshly, that we would be amazed that you've delivered us from the domain of darkness and that you've transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved son, that we could sing that there's a new creation coming and the glory of the Lord is going to be the light that's in our midst. Would you help us, Father, to be moved by that message and to so long to live a life that would magnify your worthiness and that we would be empowered by your spirit to do it through the love and gentleness and peace and humility that comes through embracing the gospel of peace. We love you. We pray for grace in our every need. We ask all this through Jesus. Amen.